Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book, Patricia Sanjin Tells Her Own Story by Patricia Sanjin, with permission of Ten of Those Publishing Company. And we are on Chapter 11, The Children Come. When winter drew on, the children swarmed to the house. My new helper, Benty, from Denmark, arrived to take Margaret's place. She loved children and again lifted much of the load. And I started to write Star of Light. The plot of the book is fictitious, but based on many true incidents. The old, childless wife in the village where I stayed, superseded by a new, attractive young mother. The beggar who hired the blind child to sit with him in the market. The babies repeatedly left on missionaries' doorsteps. And above all, Haman. Haman, who turned out of his home because food was scarce. Who worked for the donut man and stole my eggs and my watch and anything else he could lay his hands on. Who brought me a starving kitten as a Christmas present and who recognized the way to heaven was written in the book. And that therefore he must learn to read. Haman would arrive for his lessons in the middle of the night. He became a large part of my life and I still go back to see him every year. The little town so impoverished and destitute under Spanish rule has flourished under the Moroccan government and is still not quite a prosperous tourist center. Well-dressed, middle-aged gentlemen greet me enthusiastically and are grieved to discover that I cannot always remember which little, ragged, hungry, barefoot boy was which. I think Muhammad first brought him on. He was a small, spotted-faced boy with a shaved head and an enormous ulcer on his shin. I gathered that he had been knocked about a good deal, for he would not let me come anywhere near him. I had to put the cotton wool, ointment and dressing and bandage in one corner of the room and stand in the far corner issuing directions. If I approached the step, he was out the door like a startled rabbit. But he allowed me to pray for healing from my corner, and gradually the ulcer dried up. Set free from pain, he became more friendly, and the day came when he turned on leaving and remarked earnestly, Your heart is good. Your teaching is good. Your food is good. May God have mercy on your ancestors. He started to gang up with the boys who came every night for their supper of bread and lentils or beans, rug-making, and Bible story. They were on the whole a tough, gallant little crowd, fully engaged in begging, scrounging, and stealing, and well able to survive. The girls who came in the morning were much more pathetic. They were not homeless, but they were mostly very poor, and many were sent out early to beg. So they came to school when they could and left when they must. We gave them breakfast of bread and olives and coffee made from ground, burnt barley, goat's milk, and sugar. This was a great attraction and drew as many as we could squash in. Many of them were called Fatima and their surnames were vague and unchangeable. So the register went something like this. Fatima Spottyhead, Zora and Toma Gate, Goats, Fatima TB, Fatima Hunchback, Rama Soars on Arms, etc., etc., their heads crawled with lice, and so did the hems of their garments. We sometimes had an afternoon when we tried to cope with the heads, which was a losing battle, but greatly enjoyed by all. Screeks of laughter as the lice fell out into the basin. When they first started to come, I was afraid. In cold weather, they gathered in the room where I slept, and I remember praying about it. Lord, I said, I don't mind the body lice. I can deal with those, but I can't see the head lice. How can I cope? But the Lord was very merciful. In the years I worked with those children, I often picked the lice off of the hems of my clothes, but I never once, as far as I know, had one in my hair. 
The psalmist talks about God promising to be a shield to his head, and I experienced that in a very practical way. Toma was the littlest of our scholars. She had an older sister, Zora, who brought her a baby on her back called Fatima. They all slept with a small herd of goats, which their mother took up to the mountain during the day. While Toma begged in the fish market and the people threw her the old odd sardine, she would arrive in school with a fish pinned to her filthy little dress, and she was not smelling very well. Being the youngest, she always made straight from my lap, and in spite of the substantial pinafores, the mixed smells of stale fish, goat, and unwashed child seemed to penetrate every part of me. One day I spoke to her sister about it. Zora, could you wash Thomas' dress? She was rather offended. That seemed quite unreasonable to her. We haven't got any soap, she said. If I gave you some soap, would you wash it? The idea of soap was attractive, and the three went off together. It was a cold, rainy day, and in quite a short time they were all back. Toma in a soaping dress that was clung to her, but both she and the dress looked like a different color. But Zora, I said, why did you put the soaking dress back on her? She'll be ill. It appeared that it had never been taken off of her. There was no substitute. So Toma and her dress had to be put in the bucket all in one piece, to her great satisfaction. I removed the wet garment and dressed her in an old petticoat of mine and a warm pajama coat of my brother's, tied around the waist with a string, and she minced off down the road, no doubt imagining herself dressed in the latest European fashion. It was at this point, early in my stay, that I wrote to friends in England, asking for old, warm children's clothes, and they responded magnificently. School consisted of an hour's knitting, breakfast, reading, and Bible stories, and with Marguerite and then Benty's help in the classroom. And with Fantima organizing the food, all went well. But wool was a problem. Friends in England and Switzerland sent us leftover balls of all colors, and the children joyfully knitted their own rainbow-striped pullovers. But the wool went very fast. We used raw sheep's wool, which we teased and dried on the roof, for the boys' rugs, but we couldn't mix the two kinds. To buy proper skeins of wool was financially impossible. Then came a Friday when I sadly told the children that they could come on Monday for reading and Bible stories, but there would be no more knitting for a time. The wool had given out, and we must wait for the next parcel. Zora was very angry. She was a thin, sharp-faced child with a most determined character. Her baby sister, Fatima, lived on her back, and if Zora sat down, Fatima usually screamed. But Zora intended to learn to read, and she intended to knit pullovers, first for both her little sisters and then for herself. So she walked tirelessly up and down the passage, learning her letters, clicking away her needles. Benty and I would work away at the knitting in our spare time, for such persistence deserves success. And now today, just when Thomas' pullover was within a few days of being finished, there was no more wool, and she scrawled at us. Suddenly her face brightened. You told us God answers prayer, she said. Let's ask him to send us wool by Monday. She placed the empty suitcase in the center of the mat, and the children with one accord gathered around it. Lifting their hands, palmwards upwards, like the beggars in the marketplace, Zora prayed, O oh Lord God, send us wool by Monday. And I looked on with a sinking heart, for how could wool come by Monday? Parcels, if there were any, always went to Tangier, and my brother was not due for another week. There was a sudden commotion at the front door, a banging of numerous noisy little boys all shouting, Telephone! I left all and ran. The big house at the bottom of the street boasted a phone and would call me for urgent messages. It was always an exciting occasion, with children rushing after me down the street, waiting outside to hear the news. 
As I went inside, picked up the receiver, the whole family gathered round, eager and expectant. It was Farnham. There are visitors from England coming next week, so we're coming tomorrow instead, he said. I've just selected an enormous box of wool from Switzerland. Zora was not surprised. I told you, she said, and I shall need some red wool. But the incident made an impression on her, and she listened more carefully to the Bible stories. Then one day, little Toma arrived, breathless, exhausted, with Fantima bouncing on her back. Her mother was ill, and Zora had had to take the goats onto the mountain. Zora returned within a week, but something had happened. She was quieter and less aggressive, and she looked happy. A day or two later, she lingered behind. I want to tell you something, she said. The first day I took the goats up the mountain, I was very frightened. I'd never been up the mountain alone before. But I remember that Jesus said, I am with you always, and I wasn't afraid anymore. Then I was hungry and thirsty, and I only had a small piece of bread. But I remember that Jesus said he was the bread of life. So I ate my bread, and I wasn't hungry anymore. And I went on a little, and I found a stream bubbling up among the stones, and I drank, and I wasn't thirsty anymore. Then a mist came, and I couldn't see the goats, and I feared to lose them. But I remember that Jesus promised to answer prayer. So I prayed. The sun shone through that mist, and the goats came back. So now I know. Such a simple little story, but then she was a simple child. She learned to read quickly and soon mastered the little reading primer we had made which a kind friend who was a printer copied for us. It consisted of nine pages, a few sentences on each, and some simple black-and-white illustrations. It spoke of the purity and beauty of heaven, the barrier of sin, the birth of Jesus, the story and the meaning of his death. It told of his resurrection and ascension and finished up with three little prayers, a prayer for forgiveness, a prayer for the Holy Spirit of love, and a prayer to the Good Shepherd for protection and guidance from earth to heaven. Mufuddle, who came to school each morning from an outlying farm, loved her little book. She could soon read it fluently, and one day she begged me to let her take it home. Being still inexperienced, I let her do so. But the next day she did not come back, and later I found the book torn up on the doorstep. Benty and I felt very sad, for she had been such a bright, intelligent child who had seemed to understand so much and to respond so quickly. Now, she was just another snatched back. I saw nothing of her for months, and then one day her father came to the door, all smiles. The brother was ill out at the farm, and would I please come along and see him? I left Benty to cope with the house and went on my own, down through the cobble streets and out onto the main road that wound upwards and eastwards into the mountains, with the wide views across the valley and more mountains below. The farm stood off the road, screened by fig trees in a low-thatched hut with a family living in one end and the livestock the other. It was rather dark inside, and I could see Mafuddle sitting, squatting among the goats. But I turned my attention to the boy on the bed. He was coughing and feverish, and they agreed to come for medicine. I made the usual polite remarks and left. I had not gone far before there was a rush of feet, and a small hand was thrust into mine. Mafuddle, bright-eyed, tousled, and distinctly goaty, was smiling up at me. Come to the top of that little hill, she said. We climbed together and stood looking down at the roofs of the hamlet, the olive groves and the fig trees, and the deep green of the patches of the Indian corn. That's my brother's farm, said Mafuddle, pointing to the long, low hut, and that's my grandfather's house. But you can't see my home. I can, I said, standing on tiptoe. 
It's down there behind the fig tree. I don't mean that one, she said rather impatiently. I mean my real home, up there with God. Yes, I know, my fuddle. But who's going to lead you there? Jesus, my Savior, she whispered. And then she was gone, flying down the mountainside, out of sight, among the greenery. But she had told me all she wanted me to know, and I went home comforted. Jesus said, This is life eternal, that they might know me. But perhaps the child he gave the most joy was Aaliyah, the slave girl in the mayor's house. Her mother, a widow far from home in a distant village and starving, had brought her little two-year-old daughter to the distant relative of her dear husband in the town and sold her. The child had grown up as a little slave. She was not cruelly treated, but she was desperately overworked in the large house. She must have been about 14 years old when she appeared at the door, a towel over her head. I could not see her face. A mumbled, My mistress has come. I followed her and found the mayor's wife sitting in a beautiful curtained room with her precious first son on her lap. There had been three daughters. The baby had whooping cough and was vomiting every feed. He was desperately thin and dehydrated and exhausted from coughing. The house was near and I went three or four times a day to feed the baby and administer the medicine and to feed him again if he wanted. Very gradually he grew better and sometimes in the evening the mother would want me to stay and chat. I tried to tell her about Jesus who had the power to heal, but she turned away nervously and changed the subject. I left her rather sadly at the end of the fortnight. The baby was feeding well, gaining weight, and there was no reason to keep on visiting. There were so many others. It must have been three weeks later when I was startled by a violent hammering on the door. Thinking there had been an accident, I ran to open, only to find a breathless girl on the doorstep carrying a large basket of vegetables. She pushed past me without invitation and stood in the passageway looking up at me. Do you remember me, she asked. I had to admit I didn't. I was a servant in the mayor's house. I used to listen behind the curtain when you talked to my mistress. You talked about heaven. She sent me to the market, but I ran all the way, and now I can stay for five minutes. Can you tell me the way to heaven in five minutes? I fetched the little wordless book for the illiterate, and we went over it. The brightness of heaven, the darkness of sin, the atoning blood of Jesus, shed on the cross for sinners, the white purity of sin forgiven. The third page means nothing to them the first time, but I have had women say, Tell me again the name of the man who died for me. She understood enough to lift up her hands, palms upward like the beggars in the street, and say, Oh God, give me a clean heart. And then she bolted. It was some time before I would see her again. But her mistress noticed a difference in her. The old sullen, defiant look had gone, and there seemed to be some secret content. One day she questioned her. I do not know what was said or how the child explained it, but Aaliyah was suddenly allowed to come and learn. She would turn up on a Sunday at a highly unorthodox time in the, at the morning service. And I asked her one day to tell us what difference it had made to her knowing Jesus. And she considered. I suppose I'm no longer afraid, she replied. About two years later, her master planned to marry her to a countryman who would take her far away from us. But she was quite confident that this would not happen until she'd learned to read. I know I shall have to go to the end in the end, she said, but not until I can read the word of God. The day came when the man was coming to legalize the engagement. She sent us a message. Pray for me, she said, and the tiny group of Christians gathered in my home and prayed for her deliverance. We sang the Arabic translation of the English hymn which Fatima loved. The soul that on Jesus had leaned for repose, 
I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. Later on in the day, she sent a message that all was well. I asked her what had happened, and she had been asked the customary traditional question, Will you marry this man? And to everyone's amazement and indignation, she replied that she would rather not. Her rejection would have been speedily brushed aside had it not been for the man himself, who lost his temper and shouted that if she did not want him, there were plenty of girls who did, and that he would not take her at any price. Her master, who had been received the bride price, was not pleased. That did not worry Alina unduly. God had heard her prayer, and for a time, at least she was safe. When she finally left to go, she could read her New Testament. Most of the girls were married by their parents' arrangement at the age of 15 and shut in. It was difficult to keep in touch as the in-laws were not always welcoming. Many of the young husbands migrated to the big cities and settled there. Sometimes, even now, when I return for a few weeks each year to Morocco, I find one of them again. They nearly always remember one thing from those old days, the little hymn that we sang almost daily in Arabic. This is a beautiful country. The gates are closed. No sin can go in. O Lord, my God, give me a clean heart. Take away my sin and the blood of my Savior. Lead me on the road to your house, O God. Then receive me with joy. They repeat the words with laughter and enjoyment, for those old days are happy ones. How much they understood, I did not know. But I remember that the thief on the cross knew much less theology than that which is contained in that little hymn. Yet he was welcomed in. Many years later, I went to the Arab Christian Conference in France, where a number of women had told they had become Christians. Most of them had attended missionary sewing or knitting classes when they were children and heard the Bible stories, but none of them had really dared to accept or even believe at that time. But years later, when they heard the same message on the radio or through another Christian, it all came back to them. The warm room, the kindness, the tea biscuits, the bright colors of wool, and somehow they wanted to prolong the memory, and they listened. And suddenly it all made sense. It helps us to believe what is sometimes hard when working with Muslim children, that our labor is not always in vain in the Lord. And next we will read chapter 12, Out in the Villages. I love you. I'm praying for you. And we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.